Welcome to The Lion, the Witch, and the Evangelicals, the fifth season of the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast. I am Crispin Mayfield, and I'm a therapist. I'm D.L. Mayfield, and I'm a writer and neighbor. And we discuss evangelical artifacts from the 80s and 90s. This season, we're tackling everybody's favorite kids series, The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. So join us as we return to childhood and rediscover what's special about this series as we keep our eye out for themes of dominant theology. Hello, dear listeners. Today we have something a little different. Two weeks ago, for our Patreon community, we had a live Zoom Q&A with Matt Michelados asking a bunch of questions about Lewis and Narnia. We talked about lots of bibs and bobs, uh, Lewis's strange relationship with his friend's mother, planet Narnia, and ego-critical reading of Narnia. Um, and it was just lots of interesting information. It was really great to have uh, some of our patrons' questions, but also the answers answers um, and the stuff that people were bringing to the discussion was awesome. That doesn't all come through in the audio because there's a lot of stuff going on in the chat, but we wanted to share the recording with you. If you want to join us for events like these in the future, you can become a supporter of our podcast at patreon.com slash dlmayfield. And I wanted to say thank you to all of our patrons because your support has allowed us to get better equipment and spend more time editing and being able to bring you all more content. So we really appreciate your support of this podcast. So without further ado, here's the recording of a Q&A with Matt Michelados. Nice to see people's faces. I will be honest and say I've had a really long day with my children. And <laughs> I brought it upon myself. I made sugar cookies with them, which always sounds so great. And then it just devolves terribly and it's so <laughs> So that's where I'm coming from. And Chris has been working all day. Yeah. So just jumping right in. Yeah. That's awesome. And My daughter made a, a banana chocolate cake, coffee cake thing. And she's 11. So she made it herself. And I come in and, you know, the kitchen is, uh, looks like it is a banana chocolate cake. And uh, her mom says, uh, okay, now you have to clean. And she goes, oh, but mom, I'm so tired now. We're like, well, it's okay to be tired. <laughs> Here's a rag. So, yeah, it was pretty funny. That's that should be done soon, though. That's how I feel. I made cookies. Why do I have to clean it up? Right, exactly. Okay, so, y'all, use the chat to interject. Um, and then at the end, you know, we can have people just unmute themselves and talk maybe for, like, the last 10, 15 minutes. But, uh yeah, it's lovely. It's lovely to see some faces. And y'all, Matt, you want to just introduce yourself really quick? Yeah, sure. So I'm Matt Michelotis. I live in Vancouver, Washington, which is not too far from our friends in Portland there. Uh, I am an author and a screenwriter and a variety of other things. And one of the things is a big C.S. Lewis fan, uh, fan question mark. Yes, definitely a fan. Uh, but also, you know, kind of a little bit of a critic now that I'm an adult and a little past what uh, what I was reading when I was six. Um, yeah, so I've been doing an art a series of articles on C.S. Lewis at Tor.com, which is a big science fiction website. And uh, of course, I got to come on the podcast here well, well a few weeks ago, right? That that aired, and we talked some about uh, some C.S. Lewis Reaper Cheap and some things about the Dawn Treader, uh, which was really fun. 
Yeah, it was it was so awesome. We've had a lot of cool nerds on our podcast. Me and Chris were just talking. We just realized like we didn't do the thing you're supposed to do when you have a podcast, which is invite like famous people on. <laughs> like, <laughs> be on and then they tweet about being on your show. And then you get a lot of like right. listeners. We're like, oh, we didn't do that. But you know, we found really cool people to talk to. You, you don't have to sell out right away. And some of us yeah. might become famous. I'm and waiting. that's even better. I'm waiting to sell out. Yeah, I'm just like fighting. It doesn't right. always work too. Like sometimes famous people are too busy. Like we had George R.R. R. Martin on our podcast and he's not going to. Oh, yeah. We spent a good, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes with uh, with George. Uh, and we actually decided we weren't going to ask him anything about Game of Thrones because they said we could have like 10 minutes with him. Or like, maybe he'll talk to us longer if we don't say the same thing everyone else does. So we talked about the golden age of TV, science fiction. What is he working on now? Like all these things. Uh, and at the end, uh, I told him, well, my co-host said that I'm really afraid of wolves, which is true. And uh, George was like, what? Why are you afraid of wolves? And then he went on this long thing about how wolves aren't scary. Feral dogs are scary. And uh, invited me to come to his ranch where he, I don't know, takes care of wolves. And I was like, did you not hear the part where I'm afraid of wolves? And then I didn't ever want to reach out to him again because I thought he was going to have me come to New Mexico. You anyway. come hang out with wolves. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. No, I don't want to do that. Uh, I've read C.S. Lewis. I know what happens when you get close to wolves. So, yeah. Anyway, he's a great guy. Super fun. Really kind. But he didn't tweet out that he was on our podcast, you know? Oh, that... Okay, that's an incredible story. And... Um, Street cred, right? I can't... <laughs> I, I can't come back from that just thinking... Like, he is super into wolves. Okay, now we... Oh, can... he loves wolves. Okay. Well... It makes sense, right? Yeah. I don't know. I read one page of one of his books and I was like, this is not a this is not a Danielle book. And no, yeah. He likes wolves and naked ladies and violence. It was that naked lady part that got me. You know? Yeah, no. But I know. I started watching the first episode of Game of Thrones and I was like, did a 14-year-old write this? What is happening? <laughs> okay, we 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 gotta talk about some Narnia stuff. Um, you were mentioning, you mentioned on the podcast about your kids a little bit. And Crispin was just talking to you about if your kids like Narnia and you were sort of like, not, not really, you know, your younger daughter who's 11 is into Harry Potter. Do your yep. kids know that you like write about C.S. Lewis, that you nerd about C.S. Lewis? Oh, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. You know how it is with kids. Like, uh, there are some people out there in the world that are very impressed that I write for tour or that I'm friends with so-and-so or that I have books uh, but that is not the same for your kids. Your kids are like, yeah, my dad writes books, you know, unless there's a very specific place where it can be used as like a, some sort of flag of victory. Like my dad writes books and your dad can't read, you know, like something like that. Um, but uh, yeah, no, they're, they're not overly impressed. Most of their life I've been doing this sort of thing. So they're like, that's great, dad. Like they're proud of me, but they're not like, wow, that's cool. Yeah. Uh, you know what they love, ironically, is meeting all my friends in publishing. So I'll be like, oh, I'm talking to my editor, Caitlin, today. And they're like, oh, Caitlin, we love Caitlin. Say hi to Caitlin. So that's what they get excited about, is all my buddies. That is really funny. Crispin, did you want to just, like, get right into it? Yeah. Well, and giving context for everyone, we were talking about mm -hmm. this idea that uh, Eustace is, you know, was a dragon all along. Mm -hmm. um, and that struck me because shame in kids that have gone through trauma often feel uh, reptilian and disgusting. And so yeah. 
getting those messages. And sometimes we, we like give those messages in churches and it resonates in a negative way. Right. Um, and at the same time, I'm really struck by uh, that scene where Aslan takes the skin off. To me, it feels like actually at the core of him is, is Eustace. And he, yeah. so I, but I was curious yeah, so I think it's interesting. I was listening to the the intro on the podcast when you guys talked about that, and I was like, oh, I wish we had been able to talk about that on the show together. Um, it's interesting because I think part of the reason that echoes the way it does uh, is because looking at it through the evangelical lens, what we come to is this question of uh, original sin, uh, are people basically evil? All these things. Lewis didn't look at it like that. He saw, he saw the spiritual world really differently or the uh, spiritual growth really differently. He, he would not use this term, but he's almost like an evolutionary uh, spiritual uh, transformation person. So his thought is there's no such thing as static spirituality. You're either moving toward becoming something godlike uh, or you're moving toward becoming something horrific and evil uh, or, or subhuman, even he would say, he, he actually would say that uh, bestial. Right. So, and that's what we see happening actually with, with Eustace is, is okay. Maybe he has dragonish things. And maybe I'm exaggerating when I say he was always a dragon, but when he becomes a dragon, he loses his capacity for speech. Right. So Lewis is saying like, he's becoming worse even uh, and with, this is a theme throughout the Narnia books. Like you meet a bear that's lost its ability to speak. Um, and, and Lucy has this horrible thought in Prince Caspian. What if that happened to people? Uh, Lewis believed that. that uh, and partly this is probably shaped by his time in the war, right? Where he's seeing really horrific things done by human beings that, you know, six months ago would have been sitting down to tea together. And he's like, oh, we can become these horrific things or we can become these amazing things. And that's that popular quote about like, you know, if we could see the spiritual reality of people, we'd be tempted to uh, bow down and worship some, right? And be absolutely reviled by others that we would see as demonic. So he saw us, he saw us as in constant danger on the one hand of becoming something less than even human and in constant uh, possibility on the other of becoming something much more than what we consider human. Um, so yeah, it's a really, uh, it, it's not a, it's not a philosophy that's at home in evangelicalism for sure. It's a really different way of looking at things that's in, informed specifically by his medievalism, by science at the time. And I think by his time in the war. So, uh, yeah, it's pretty interesting. And that's, that's one of the difficulties with Lewis actually is that sometimes he just wants you to understand what he's thinking, but he had a very unique point of view on things. Uh, and that's why we see a lot of places actually in Narnia that you, you're like, is that what he meant? And it's probably not exactly. So, but we all have that, right? Kind of those blind spots in how we look at things. That's, that's really interesting. I was thinking about the, the shell shock connotations because we haven't really discussed that very much on the podcast, but just how obviously the war did shape C.S. Lewis, shape oh, yeah. Tolkien. And I think more people yep. know about Tolkien. Wasn't he like the only person who survived in his his like unit or something. Yeah. He went through some really horrific things that really haunted him the rest of his life. And that was true for Lewis too. Uh, in fact, a lot of people in his generation, right. And it affects all sorts of interesting things. Lewis, uh, you may notice in the Narnia books, 
it, it talks about food nonstop. If there's a feast, he's going to tell you everything at it and what was good. And that's because of, you know, in the war and the five to 10 years after, they didn't have much. Uh, and so he was like fantasizing about food all the time. And you see that in his work. And there are moments too, like if you start looking at the history, you know, he and his friends had their favorite pub, but when all the soldiers came in World War II, they didn't have enough food, so they switched to another pub they didn't like as much, you know? So there's all these sorts of things happening too. But yeah, it's really interesting pulling some of that out. How, how we're shaped, right? The, the way yeah. we become who we are. Yeah, someone in the chat, uh, Chuck, talked about Eustace as a dragon. Is that sort of like a worm theology, which <laughs> would be that evangelical theology? And it, it, from what I'm hearing you say, is it's not like, uh, you know, some evangelical theology would be like, you are a worm. And what Lewis is saying is like, you move up and down on the spectrum. Yeah. Uh, depending on some of the choices that you make and the choices that you make perpetuate or set you up for the choices that you can make. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Lewis, Lewis actually absolutely believed that the, and this is where he gets accused of um, by, by particularly by conservative evangelicals of universalism. He absolutely believed that anyone that most people, not everyone, but most people who had a mystical experience, meaning they actually saw Aslan clearly or saw God clearly that they, of course, would throw aside some of the more broken parts of themselves to embrace what Aslan or God desired for them. Uh, and we see this throughout his work. Very, very few people stand in Aslan's presence and walk away unchanged. Uh, or you look at um, the, the great divorce. There are people in hell, but they've chosen to be there. Uh, uh, as MacDonald would say, right, who was one of, Lewis would say was one of his great teachers, that there are locks in hell, but they're all on the inside. Um, that anyone so, can choose to leave. Did that come from McDonald first and then Lewis sort of adapted that? It definitely became a kind of cornerstone thing for Lewis okay. that that was part of his view of hell. It wasn't an uncommon view at the time, actually. Uh, so that's interesting. That, that was part of fundamentalism moving into evangelicalism that we kind of shifted the way we looked at hell. But if you look at the medieval concept of hell, which actually was the founding of a lot of our our pictures of hell. Uh, of course, there were ways out, you know. Uh, in fact, uh, the early church fathers, one of the conceptions of hell I love, and this is well before medievalism, uh, is they would say that, of course, there's fire in hell, but where does God live in unapproachable light, right? That God is in fire. Where, who is in the burning bush? God. That hell is hell uh, because there are people who do not desire the loving presence of God in their lives, and mm -hmm. that's what creates the pain for them. Uh, and that's an idea Lewis was very familiar with and very comfortable with. And I, mm -hmm. and I believe that is still what the Orthodox view of hell yeah. is mm -hmm. at, at its heart. Okay, someone's giving me a thumbs up. Somebody knows Orthodoxy. Okay. <laughs> I mean, we're still learning about all of that. Um, mm -hmm. And we could, I mean, we could go off on that. We might come back to it a little bit, but we, we have some really good questions. So, so I want to keep going a little bit. Can uh -huh. we, there's a very, yeah. there's a very good serious question we want to ask you, Matt, but first, um, I did want to talk a little bit about the Enneagram and Narnia. Uh, <laughs> Great. Because we're, we're a Christian podcast, so we have to talk about the Enneagram, and we never have, like, publicly. But, like, so Chris <laughs> is a nine. I'm a one. That's, like, our dynamic. You can probably Oh, my gosh. I'm a nine, and my wife is a one. It's a very, mm. very common pairing because ones are 
Because ones powerful. tell you what to do, and nines, nines are like, oh, that seems fine. <laughs> so nines are amazing, and ones need help. That's why it's a very common pairing. Um, uh. But I don't, I don't know if what comes to your mind when we think about the Enneagram and Narnia. I think that um, somebody already mentioned that Reaper Chief was an eight. And I see that. And I don't know what to say about Lewis himself. I mean, I've read tons of biographies of him at this point. I don't have like a clear sense of. I have no, I'm really bad at typing other people actually. Um, That's, you know, that's probably good. Because I'm a nine. I'm like, it could be this, but it could be that. I see all things in that. Let's just leave it open. It's okay. Could be any of them. Aslan's clearly a 10. Like uh, he, whatever is he. (laughs) perfect enneagram type it's a 10 wing infinity there we go <laughs> yeah that's right <laughs> i think it'd be interesting to look at the pevensey kids um yeah so you've got uh, susan who's trying to kind of keep everyone in line and take care of them but not in a nurturing way really she's a um yeah she, okay yeah i can see that you've got uh, lucy who is kind-hearted at the core and basically always right, but never rubs anybody's face in it. She's just compassionate. She's I don't a know what seven. That I don't know. You think People so? Oh. What you think. She, you know, she's always up for a new adventure. She likes food and tumness and parties. Yeah, that's true. She, she's definitely the adventurer. Um, Edmund is so interesting because when he's the, um, I think we can probably see him, when he's healthy and when he's in disintegration, right? Because in the beginning, we see him kind of hating his family, angry at them about everything, purposely causing harm to everyone. But after the events of the first book, he becomes this really steady, loyal person that would never, I mean, you you absolutely know he's never going to be the one to betray anyone. And then he suddenly has compassion Mm -hmm. uh, for people like Eustace or even uh, for worse people. Uh, as we go through, like, um, oh boy, I'm blanking on his name. The the prince in The Horse and His Boy, uh, who is kind of put out there as absolutely the worst yeah. kind of person, Rabidash, Rabidash. Uh, kind of the worst person you could be, that Edmund recognizes who he is and still says, I kind of feel for the guy. And I'd like to treat him, you know, with respect and compassion. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's interesting. I don't know what that would be. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know where like eights go in integration. I was going to say it sounds a little bit like an eight. How you okay. described him, because I think that an unhealthy eight, I'm an eight, <laughs> an unhealthy eight definitely, <laughs> definitely is the kind of person who'll get really mad when his friends or family are not doing what they want. But I think that the way he's able to see the best in people who nobody else can see the best in mm. is when you're healthy is good. That's, oh, that's great. Interesting. That's interesting. Also, eights tend to, they, they tend to be really rigid, but when it comes to like children or pets or like vulnerable others, then they really soften. Yes. Interesting. Interesting. Yes. Yeah. And then Peter, I don't know. We don't get as much personality out of Peter because he's more of a, he's Lewis's stand in for, for Peter the Bible, Peter. Uh, but he's, you know, he, he makes some mistakes. He's hot headed occasionally, but he's largely the, the guy who should be in charge. And then he is, and he does a good job. Interesting. So maybe that's a one. <laughs> I, I feel like Peter's just a blank. He's not really like a great. Yeah. You don't get much about Peter. Like he, he gets mildly him. upset with people and then he mildly approves of them later. So. I mean, is he a three? 
Or is, or is that just, it's really hard to say because Lewis, like there's so much hierarchy in it. Yeah. yeah. I, I think of like, you know, threes and, and seeking that, you know, status. And, yeah. but mm-hmm. that was just, I mean, part of, I don't know if it was part of Lewis's worldview. I think it was much more than now. And then I also think that medieval literature, of course, like if he's drawing mm-hmm. that, then it's going to be all about, I mean, hierarchy and honor and status and that sort of thing. So. Right, right. Okay, so I don't want us to talk about the Enneagram too much because I know it's, so, it's super annoying if you don't like the Enneagram <laughs> or don't know about it. But I will say, if you're into it, in the chat, think about some of your favorite characters or just interesting characters from Chronicles of Narnia. If you feel like typing one, throw it in the chat and we will yeah. bring it up at the end because I'd just be really curious what people say. I want to know Mr. Tumnus. I'm thinking mm. of four. I'm thinking of four. Mm. He's a musician. I don't know. I want to know the White Witch. The White I Witch. Know she strikes me as a one. I'm just going to be honest. Every bad Probably. character is a one in my book, but that's just because I'm a one. You just see um, yourself in them. I just, you know, <laughs> we understand the propensity. If you could make it always winter, would you? Christmas. The fact that you have to think about it. I love Christmas. <laughs> You're like, oh, that's there a hard like question. Let me think about that. Reason. Yeah, there's some yeah. reason. If, yeah. Yeah, yeah, what do I yeah, get out of it? Winter somehow would like bring equality to everyone. Sure, I'd do it. Right. Yeah. If you were in charge, there'd be equality for everyone. I feel like there's like, I mean, someone needs to do a fan fiction of like the the queen uh, the white witch you know sort of like the maleficent movie you know like mm, yeah why, the true story motivated her well, neil, to... neil gaiman wrote a very oh man that story anyways Woo. i'll explain it to chris later and he doesn't okay. know that yeah i don't okay it's so um... it's kind of like a disney movie is that what you're saying uh-huh <laughs> no. no okay so should we ask the question about is it safe? And then, and then get to some in the, in yeah. the chat. Okay. Yeah. So you, you sort of set it up. Well, just, um, I mean, I, I've heard this from several places that yeah. line, uh, you know, he's, he's not a safe line, but he's good. Um, yep. I mean, it's that line is said in various different ways throughout the book. Yeah. I know because I was trying to find a direct quote and I was like, oh, it's not the same line over and over. It's like... He's not a tame line. He's not a safe line. Is there anything right. else we're missing, Matt? Or is that kind of the two? Uh, those, those are the key ones that are kind of interchangeable for sure. And the first time Mr. Beaver says it, he says both those things. Oh. Mm-hmm. Um, that Lucy is... Sent, or I think it's... Is it Lucy that says, uh, is he quite safe? And he says, well, no, he's not safe. He's good. And then he goes on this little speech uh, where he says he's not a tame lion. Uh, but he's good, right? That you can't control him, but he's good is kind of the message. But the tame thing comes up many times in in the throughout the throughout the series. Yeah. Yeah. So, what do you think the question is? Really? <clears throat> well, I think that I I I think I guess the best question is like, what do you think that Lewis meant by that? And yeah. let me give some context. Like if we're talking about an, an American evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. Okay. So here's, here's the thing is, um, can we trust that God is good? Therefore God does good things. Yeah. Um, so, so some people would say like, if there, if a bunch of people die in a bridge collapsing, let's say in Minneapolis, 
Yeah. Um, wildly very specific, but it's because I'm going to talk about John Piper, um, where he lives. Um, uh-huh. You know, someone would say, like, God is good, therefore, like, people dying, God didn't do that. That's some other force in the world. Whereas uh, someone like Piper and a more reformed theology would say, the, the bridge collapsing and people dying is good because God did it, and therefore it's good. And he literally said that in Minneapolis when a yeah. bunch of people died when a bridge collapsed. Right. And so, yeah. Yeah. I wonder what, like, I think that's what it brings up. I don't think that that's what Lewis is was no. saying. Uh, no. So, okay. First, let's, let's address, like, if you, if you are reformed and you're with us right now, uh, apologies, I'm going to share Lewis's opinion here. He, uh, he was not a fan. And, and neither was George MacDonald, actually. Um, <laughs> George, George MacDonald did entire sermons about how evil uh, that kind of that conception of God was and that it was evil enough that he questioned whether you actually knew the real God, right? So he did these enormous uh, sermons about it. Um, Lewis said that the nicest thing he ever said about kind of this conception of God was it no longer seems as foolish or wicked as I once thought it did. Um, but that was, that was the nicest thing he could say. Uh, so Lewis didn't believe that. Um, I, so, so what you will see is this. Okay. So people say uh, Aslan's not safe, but good. And then it's easy to find an article somewhere on the internet where someone says like, yeah, exactly. We need to stop neutering men and let them be strong. They don't have to be nice. Uh, but that's not Lewis's message at all. Like, cause if you look at Aslan in the books, he's constantly, now there are moments where he's, he seems cruel and he harms people, literally harms them. And we need to discuss that. But there are these other moments where he's like rolling around with the kids in the grass and they're like wrestling and playing tag and doing these things. And he's very, very uh, effusive, especially if you're thinking of him as a British lion with his <laughs> praise and compassion and his kindness and love toward people. So it's not saying don't be nice, right? It's, I think what he's much more saying is that, uh, okay, he's not tame, meaning you can't control him. So when, uh, when the kids say, oh, we wish he would stay during our reign in Narnia. No, he comes and goes as he pleases is what uh, I think. I, can't, I think it might be Mr. Beaver who says that. He's not tame. He comes and goes as he pleases. We see this again uh, in the Caspian stories um, that you can't, you can't tr- control him. The reason he's not safe is because stuff like Jill, when she wants to get to the, uh, the fountain of life and uh, she's saying, can I can I come by you and you promise not to eat me? And he says, no, I can't promise you that, right? Like I've devoured entire kingdoms. I might devour a little girl. I can't tell you I won't, right? So there's this, for Lewis, it's partly this respect of the fact, here's someone with all the power, like a lion. If you and I ran into a lion in Africa somewhere, uh, you can't guarantee the lion's not going to do what a lion does. But he's also good, which means if he's going to, rake someone with his claws, it's going to be with good purpose to move them toward good things. Am I comfortable with that? Not particularly. Uh, But Lewis really believed that pain was a big part of the way that God shapes us. So that was part of that. And then the other thing I just mentioned, the other piece to look at with this, that I think Lewis directly addresses this question, is in the last battle. 
and there's a fake Aslan in the last battle, right? So someone who's claiming to be Aslan, but is not. And one of the things the fake Aslan is doing is cutting down the dryad trees in parts of Narnia. So killing dryads basically. And Jewel, the unicorn says, uh, well, I guess he's not a tame lion, right? Uh, so that's kind of what he's saying is like, oh, God can just cut down all the dryads and that's okay. And Jewel's going, I guess, I guess he's not a tame lion. And, and that's, so that must be good what he's doing. But the weight of the book is absolutely in the other direction. They're like, no, that's evil. Aslan would never do that. And the fact that you think Aslan did that means that you can't tell the difference between a fake and a true Aslan. So Lewis, part of it's that Lewis looks at authority differently than most of us do in this current age. Um, he saw uh, the basic problem with authority was typically that it was disordered, which Crispin, you were mentioning. It's a medieval concept that if things are wrong, it's because um, everyone's not responding in the right way all the way up to the top and the top is God. Uh, and Aslan always does the right thing. God always does the right thing. So even if it looks wrong, even if you're like, oh, was that the right thing to do? You can trust that his character is good and he knows more than you. So that's the place where I think it starts feeling like we're getting to more reformed feeling theology. Um, but, but Lewis doesn't mean it the way it feels like it does if you come from a reformed background. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I, I think so. Like the last interview we aired was with uh, an Iranian scholar and he studied C.S. Lewis and Carl Jung and was like mm -hmm. saying that Lewis was basically saying, if you have the sort of reformed view of God or it's some sort of archetype of God where God is capable of doing evil, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's going to come out. And that's what the right. last battle is, is like, if you, if there's even a little place in your mind for, you know, he's not a tame lion, he can harm you in order to do good, you know, to do his purpose, then you will be prone to believe the worst about God because you kind of already do believe that even if you don't let yourself say it out loud. And that right. was really astonishing to me because the, the vast majority of people I hear saying he's not a tame lion, like quoting all the time in present day are reformed people, which is really fascinating. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that's where Lewis would be uh, pretty distressed. I think by that usage, because he was a big believer in um, he was a big believer in authority rightly used. So these places that we see a lot of abuse happening uh, throughout, throughout various expressions of the church, uh, he would have no patience for and wouldn't at all say, oh, I guess God put that person in charge. He would be like, that person's disordered. We should remove them. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why we see Aslan doing things like, what does he do to the white witch at the end of the book? Like, he kills her. Um, and yeah, so there's there are penalties for those who have harmed others. And Lewis, uh, kind of in line with what we we're saying earlier, he had a real soft spot for kids, particularly, and certainly for animals. In fact, <laughs> in fact, he had mice in his home uh, and he would not set out traps or anything because he liked it when they came out while he was writing at night. Um, he just let them like run out on his desk. Uh, he put crumbs out for them. Anyway, so that's where Reaper Cheap <laughs> likely comes from. That's like a Disney um, movie. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, Lewis would not at all. He, he believed in authority, but not in, um, not in harming people with authority. And I think those who see power as a means, uh, a necessary end or a birthright or something along those lines end up misusing it in a way that 
uh, that's a lot of what Prince Caspian's about, actually, right? Mm-hmm. Is here these people that come in and they try to control everyone with their power. And Lewis says, yeah, that's because you're the wrong people. You shouldn't be in charge. Yeah, I was thinking, I, I would imagine that the other aspect of that, of Aslan being su- not safe but good, is the the mystery of God. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. assuming that that's what that's also in reference to, which is kind of the opposite of like, I have God figured out so I can, I, I can know for yeah. sure that when this happens, I, you know, my theology is locked down. So therefore, you know, this happened. So God must've wanted it to happen. I mean, people say, you know, God's mysterious. We don't know why he, why he did this, but I feel like that's, that's not actual real mystery. <laughs> yeah. That's like saying like, I think I have it figured out and I can't really explain it. Um, right. Whereas, why, yeah. why is God's capacity for human suffering greater than mine? If he's better than me. Yeah. I, I think that's a, a pretty good question. Yeah. yeah. I think for sure. And, and I think for, if we come from backgrounds where we've experienced spiritual abuse or, uh, or some sort of trauma that the idea of a God who may roar at you in one moment and then gently, uh, lick you with his tongue at another sounds like what you've experienced in, a, in abusive places, right? The unpredictability of abusive personalities, um, or abusive people, I should say. Um, Whereas what Lewis would keep pushing us toward is like, no, 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 Aslan's never abusive. You can't predict him because like you said, there's mystery, there's wildness to him, but he would never harm you uh, without, without the intention to bring you good. Not, not in the, not without the intention of moving you toward on that spectrum toward becoming a better person, right? A, A more deified person. Yeah. This is so fascinating. Okay, so Joanna Wilson asked this question, kind of talking about this whole Aslan's not safe. He has a capacity to harm people. So she says, is that a big thing with Erebus since she had power over her slave girl so that she she had a steeper penalty because she abused her power? Does that make sense? So like Aslan taking his claws and he, you know, scrapes Erebus's back and it turns out it's just to sort of not symbolize, but sort of equate with the lashes her slave girl got who she didn't think about the consequences for her earlier in the right. story. So yeah, is that a power so, thing? Is that kind of what C.S. was thinking about? Yeah, I think absolutely. So we have Erebus, who is so fascinating because Lewis has a variety of issues related to race and gender, but we have Erebus, who is a woman of color, uh, who is in this book and really is one of the most competent beloved children from Lewis's point of view. It seems really clear. She doesn't really mess up. And if someone says something bad about her, Lewis kind of steps in and like Shasta at one point is like, Oh, I bet she abandoned me. And Lewis's narrator steps in and goes, well, if he knew her at all, he knew she would never do that. Like she's very loyal, uh, which he doesn't do for the other kids all the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, so when this happens, it's the shocking moment. Cause you haven't really seen Aslan yet in the book. And this lion comes and rakes her back uh, and then, so, yeah, you're like, is this corporal punishment? Uh, it certainly could be. But later what it says is that the, uh, that the cuts were the same number and depth of those that the slave girl had gotten, right? Which she keeps putting on. She's like, I don't care what happens to the slave girl. It's just my mother-in-law's slave anyway. She, she was a problem. Uh, and so what ends up happening is that when Aslan says this to her, she immediately says, is she like, is she okay? Did anything else happen to her? 
Uh, so it created compassion in her. And Aslan being Aslan knew that would be the result, uh, is what Lewis would say to us. Uh, does that mean God should always attack people and like slice open their backs? No. It's that in that moment, uh, Aslan knew that's what Erebus specifically needed. Uh, yeah, am I comfortable with that? Not really. Uh, but that's what Lewis is telling us for sure. Yeah, I was like, I'm pretty sure Christmas is not enjoying this. And I know, I think it's weird. At the same time, it might come back around to that orthodox concept of heaven, hell, the divine love of God can sometimes feel like fire because we have to reckon yeah. with right. that other people are loved by God. That slave mm-hmm. girl's loved by Aslan, right? Yeah, and for so sure. I exactly. Think, I think if that's what we're thinking about, that's easier for me, but it's really tricky. None of us have to like pretend we love everything about this. Well, and it's, it's justice and mercy in that sense, right? The other thing you have to realize, and I, I hate to bring this up if you don't already know it, folks at home, uh, Lewis went through, uh, gosh, is it even a phase? It's not even a phase. You know, Lewis went through a time in his youth uh, and probably in the middle age, at least, where, you know, he was whipping himself, uh, that he was harming himself, uh, sometimes for sexual pleasure, sometimes for who knows why people do the things they do. He, he never like wrote a journal entry about it um, that laid all out what he was doing. Um, so he saw he had a very unique um, relationship to pain that I see. We, I, I think we see that um, unhealth maybe that was in part of his life coming out in different places. So where, where I see a scene where Aslan gives the kids whips and they're chasing and whipping the bad kids. And I'm like, Oh no, no, like don't do that. Lewis really saw that as, as a good thing. Like as, as compassion, they're helping them in some way. But I'm like, I don't think so. But that's, <laughs> that's a place where we can have compassion for Lewis, right? Like he, he had a hard life in a variety of ways. His mom died when he was young. His dad was completely disconnected emotionally. Um, you know, and he went through some weird things and he had some very strange relationships in his life, very little interaction with women in any healthy way. Um, so some of the things that we look at and go like, oh, this is problematic is because Lewis was revealing himself to us on the page. Uh, and I don't know, people ask me, what would he be like now today? And I'm like, I just don't know because I think because of that, possibility for growth uh, or that possibility to like devolve who knows which way Lewis would have gone. Your, your hope is as someone who has been transformative in my own life, right? That I'm like, uh, he would have been, he, Mr. Rogers would have been like, I want to learn from CS Lewis. Uh, but maybe not, maybe not. Woo! Okay. We really went there. I just feel like in that one question, we, we went to a lot of different places. <laughs> like amazing about uh, doing this live um okay so i think this is a really interesting question and matt you've already sort of mentioned in the last battle the false aslan uh cuts down all the trees ends up killing dryads and that's all basically for like capitalism or like the economy right all that's getting shipped to yeah um why am i blanking on the name it's because I've I've mispronounced it so many times. Calamine. 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 Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Calamine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, it was one of those. So, like, all of that wood is being sent there, and all that stuff. So, so this this question comes from Megan. She says, "Any thoughts on an eco-critical reading of Narnia, or insights into C.S. Lewis's view of ecology, like the talking, non-talking animals, classical mythology of the river god, and and uh, Bacchus? Is that how you say it? You know? Yeah. Yeah. And 
Yeah, like <laughs> if you have any thoughts on maybe his view of the natural world. Um, so and, many. <laughs> okay, so he also brings up if you want to talk about the space trilogy, which I bet not everybody has read that. I've already publicly said I've only read parts of it, even though I named my son after it. Um, so, you know, you just go where you want to go with that. We can talk about that. If people want to talk about that with me later. Yeah. We can talk about that. That's fine. Um, okay. So to start with, please understand that Lewis's theology was largely shaped when he was young by uh, Greek and Roman mythology and pagan mythology. So his respect for the natural world was very high. Uh, that, you know, there, there's a reason that when the world comes to life again in Prince Caspian, that it starts with the trees, that, uh, that Lucy thinks she sees something moving. There's something beautiful in the natural world. And when you look at Lewis's own story of his, um, his coming into relationship with God, there's a part of it that's like his friends who are Catholic, who are talking to him about God all the time and pushing him intellectually. And there's this other part where he talks about he kept experiencing joy in different places. And it's almost always in the natural world that he's, he's looking out at a pond or something. And he's like, wow, that's amazing. You know, he loved mice, right? He loved animals in general, that all these things are happening. And uh, so, yeah, for sure. He and Tolkien both felt that the uh, advancing of modernity was destroying the world and destroying the natural balance of the world. Uh, and uh, I don't know if you know, Isaac Asimov uh, was, uh, he's one of the kind of the grandfathers of science fiction. He was kind of the big guy. Uh, he loved Tolkien and he, he was reading it one day for like the 20th time or something. And this guy's a like an actual genius. And he was with his wife and he said, what is happening in middle earth? Like, what is it meant to represent when the orcs, are doing all this stuff and like destroying things to make the towers. What's happening? His wife goes, are you serious? It's like an ecology thing. And he was like, what? He was so horrified. Like Asimov hadn't caught it. Um, I think the movies make that pretty clear. Um, but yeah, so for Lewis, for sure, uh, if you look at any time you go to the heavenly kingdom, uh, which is uh, Aslan's land, right? Up above Narnia. It's a beautiful, there's no buildings even, uh, at least in the, uh, in, in some, for, depend, you know, it's in the mountains of the sun or it's uh, up on this mountain way, way, way up above the world, one or the other. But there's like beautiful streams, there's, there's lakes, there's rivers, there's uh, trees. So, yeah, Lewis uh, very deeply believed uh, in kind of a, he believes that in the coming world, uh, like right when Aslan remakes everything, that of course he's going to, basically remake the uh, Garden of Eden. He's just returning us to a state of perfect nature. So yeah, Lewis had pretty strong feelings about that. And we do see that in the Space Trilogy for sure. Um, in fact, the way the Space Trilogy is set up is, okay, we have our normal planets. Uh, so it's science fiction. But each planet has a, a being in charge of it. Uh, and our planet, Earth, that being has gone into rebellion and that's why everything's screwed up. And that's why things like pollution exist uh, and sin and evil. But on other planets like Paralandra, which is Venus, um, that is not the case. Uh, that uh, it's still natural and beautiful. People are still running around naked. They don't need houses. Uh, they just live in the ocean. And on, during the day, they can go up on the islands. So, yeah, he's a huge believer in sort of this natural world uh, theology. 
deeply, deeply loved it. Yeah. That is so interesting because like, that's so not present in so much theology or even apologetics. Does it show up in his apologetics at all? Anything that we would call creation care? You know, I'd have to think about that. I know the the only thing I think of off the top of my head is when uh, there's a book called The Discarded Image, which is uh, actually one of his scholarly books talking about cosmology from a medieval point of view. Uh, and there he talks about that when the universe is correctly working, that everything is moving in the right direction in the right way. So again, we get to that ordered thing, right? He's a big believer in things being ordered, uh, that all is in balance, right? Uh, in fact, and I love this, uh, so he went to talking about the spheres, right? Uh, the kind of the medieval cosmological idea that uh, stars are on a certain sphere, each planet's on a different sphere, Um and they all turn, right? That's why it appears that things are moving. So he would say that the reason they turn is because all of those things are attempting to move toward God so that the movement of the universe is actually because of love, literally the, the creation's love for God. Uh, so, and he saw that in the natural world as well, that if we're doing, if things are ordered and correct, that all of the world moves toward God and that includes the natural world. Yeah. So I'll have to think about if there's something in his essays about. Uh, yeah. Okay, oh, good. Nicole mentions uh, in the problem of pain, there's a chapter devoted to uh, pain in animals, which oh is, which God. is, yeah, that's right. That sounds yeah. fascinating. And then Joanna said in that hideous strength, it has a lot about destroying creation and nature in favor of progress. And then nature, wild animals rises up and destroys them. I think that's also fascinating. It makes me want to, you know, read the books more. I really quickly, do you want to give us your thoughts on Planet Narnia, which is the idea that <laughs> each of the seven books matches up to a specific uh, planet? I know it has its critics, but I think it's pretty convincing. I don't see a lot of question marks there. I think it's... Uh, I think for sure that, I mean, you can read, you can pick any of the Narnia books and see it in there uh, for sure. So the the criticism I heard, and I thought this was going to be in the episode we just aired with Paul Hasser, but it, it wasn't. So I'm like, I don't know where I heard this, but the main critique I've heard of it is that Lewis did not pre-plan out the Narnia books. And so then. That's true. Uh, and here's what I think is probably the answer to that. Lewis knew he was meant to do a series. Uh, his publisher told him, if it's a children's book, you don't do just one. But they didn't know if it was going to be successful or not. He did sit down. He had already written The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe first. Uh, but that's the one that's supposed to be Jupiter, which is the king. Uh, so you can definitely see tons and tons of symbolism about Jupiter there. So it's not surprising that they're like, well, now do another one. And he's like, yeah, okay, I'll do this one. Uh, and, and that's when he does Prince Caspian which you can't understand Caspian if you don't understand that it's about Mars uh, because no. <laughs> the, whole, the whole thing where, okay, we have a split between war and, uh, and nature, actually. So here comes the nature theme again. Uh, the bacchanalia that the children are invited to, which please don't invite children to bacchanalias unless Aslan is there, right? Which the kids even say is actually what restores the world to balance. It's not the fighting. The kids who go off the fight don't do anything. They fail until Aslan shows up from the party. That the thing that restores the world is actually peace. 
the, the peaceful nature of the bacchanalia, the restoration of nature, is what restores the balance and puts people back in the correct religious space. Uh, and that, in turn, moves the government back into its correct space. Uh, so, I don't know. I think it's pretty, and he stops at seven, which is the, the medieval number of planets. Um, he could have gone on probably. I'm sure they would have been glad for another book. And he debated, I guess, an eighth one, but he never did much with it. So. Dang. Okay. So you, you think that has a lot of credence. Okay. I do. I don't think he had to plan out. I don't, I do not think he sat down and planned out the seven. Right. Um, and he didn't write them in order either. Uh, in fact, at, at least one of the books, he finished one of the other books before he got to the end of that one. Like he wrote like half of it and then wrote a full one and then came back. Um, but yeah, he was that kind of guy though. He was secretive. Like there are still things we're not really sure about his life. Like there are big debates about his relationship with this woman he lived with for a long time. Um, yeah, even his close friends. In fact, <laughs> one of his close friends, you know, um, you know, he wrote a book when his wife died, right? Uh, which do you, a grief observed. Yeah. And one of his close friends said that it wasn't really a grief observed. It was more like watching someone who was lying about their life. Uh, you know, they said it had a, a feeling of honesty, but he wasn't being transparent with his full experience, uh, oh. that he was hiding things that his friends knew. Um, so, which, I mean, please, I'm not going to tell you everything about my grief journey, right? Mm -hmm. uh, certainly not in a book. But I think for people to say like, oh, he kept, he kept this secret code his whole life. Like, yeah, of course he did. And he probably was like, huh, I wonder why these guys haven't figured this out yet. It seems pretty clear. Whoa. Okay. So Joanna in the chat just said that obviously C.S. Lewis is Enneagram 5. And that is like <laughs> the best case for five I've ever heard. It was that. Also, you're right. Because I mean, of course we want to bring up some of the weird stuff about Lewis in our podcast, but I didn't know really how to talk about his relationship with that lady. Uh, because all the biographers are like, we don't know. And it's so weird. But, and everybody in his life was like, it's the, it's, it was like the defining relationship of his life for so long and yeah. nobody knew what it was and he kept it extremely private and it seems really yeah. weird. And for those of us who didn't know. Yeah, I don't know, Matt. Do you want to try and explain it? Well, so in the war, he had a good friend who said, if I die, take care of my mother. And Lewis agreed to do that. Uh, and then he died, his friend. And so Lewis did. He met the mother and he moved her into his home. And she lived with him and his brother for the rest of her life. Uh, there are, And she had a, um, his brother would say that she had a, sort of control over Jack, over C.S. Lewis. That when she said, I want this, he would say like, of course we will do that. That he kind of gave her what she wanted. Now, there are some indications that perhaps there was a sexual aspect to their relationship. And we already know he liked to punish himself in a variety of ways. Uh, and there were some weird things going on. And, and some of the ways he interacted with women gave us some indication this could be true. Um, but the people closest to him said, if so, he never, I mean, he never said that, right? We didn't know. And even his brother said like, yeah, she was terrible, uh, in the sense that she, he was unhealthy around her, but I don't know. Um, so I think what happens is you have people writing biographies that cannot imagine a relationship with someone that is unhealthy and grown together in weird ways, uh, and not being sexual, uh, so there are people saying, like, clearly it's sexual. 
Um, and then you have other people saying like, actually it is possible to make a promise to someone and then move into a really unhealthy relationship and just let yourself be consumed by it. And it could just be that. And then you add in that the guy's mom died when he was like, what, eight years old or something. So he doesn't know how to interact with a maternal figure. He doesn't know. It, it, so it's complex, I guess. And there's people always trying to prove one way or the other. And there's people with very strong opinions one way or the other. Um, but yeah, that's part of the reason it's hard to talk about is because it ends up being more revelatory about the person who makes a conclusion than it is about Jack, in my opinion, yeah. in my experience. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. Our kids are watching too much media so that we can be here right now. So we're probably going to- And I'm leaving so I can go watch media with my kids. Oh my God, yeah. full circle. But it was, this was lovely. I, I like seeing people's faces. It was so it was great really to see you guys. Nice. Really yeah. Appreciate you guys. Merry, Merry Christmas, Matt. Thanks for just letting your little nerd flag fly. I feel oh, like we got a lot of tidbits that we couldn't even really, I mean, is it okay if people want to email you or just reach out to you? Yeah, Cause I know there's some absolutely. five nerds here that want to email you. Yeah. Listen, if you can spell my name, you can find me online, uh, which is a big ask, but, uh, yeah, take a look at my last name there. I'm on Twitter as Matt Michelotis. I'm on Facebook as Matt Michelotis. I'm on, I'm on, uh, everything. Is Matt McLaughlin? Everywhere. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, you can reach out. I'm even. I'm even on Parlor. That's no. how I, I'm. I wanted to see what it looked like. I I did not stay long, but I wanted to look. Um, but yeah. Uh, so yeah, if you need to get a hold of me, you can. And my email is actually really easily too. It's just Matt at Michelotis.com. So yeah, drop me a note. Would love to hear from you. Yeah, y'all had right. really good questions. I know we didn't get all of them, so just email Matt. I have a feeling he will email back. Like Lewis would, but I don't. I just can't email. <laughs> but I always think about the fact that C.S. Lewis, like, you know, wrote letters. Yeah. Oh my gosh, there's so many of the things we know about Lewis is because somebody said, "Oh, he sent me the letter." We oh, sorry, I have to say this one more thing. Okay, okay. We have one letter where he lays out all the Narnia books and what each book is about. And that's from a letter he wrote to a little girl that wrote and said like, Hey, I don't really understand Narnia. And he was like, Oh, let me explain it. And he said it all out. He never put it in his journals. It wasn't in his notes. Uh, and she came out, gosh, uh, 19, 1990s maybe. And said like, I have this letter from CS Lewis and everyone's like, it's oh, amazing. So yeah, we need to see that letter. Can you, it's cool. Uh, yeah, I'll get a link. Uh, I'll get a link for you. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks everybody for coming. Have a good evening. I hope everybody gets some cookies to eat. <laughs> okay, bye. bye, guys. Bye. This has been an episode of the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast. Find out more at propheticimaginationstation.com. Also, you can follow Danielle and Crispin on Twitter and Instagram, as well as following the Prophetic Imagination Station on Twitter at PIS underscore imagine. 
and on Instagram at Prophetic Imagination Station. Thanks for listening.